Okay, we're going to look at the Puritans. The Puritans have received a very negative reputation in the 20th century. H.L. Mencken, who's a journalist, he said, Puritanism is the haunting fear that somebody somewhere is having fun. <laughs> that is the reputation that Puritans have. I'm going to start by talking about the English Puritans, and then we'll talk about the American Puritans. I was going to tell you the story of the separatists who fled under King James, who went to Holland, who were blown off course, set up the Mayflower Compact, had years of tough times. William Bradford, first Thanksgiving, was going to separate myth from fiction and all that, but I'm not going to. I'm just too tired to get into that story. But I urge you to get it, read it, because it is a fascinating story of what these people were willing to sacrifice to serve God. But I do want to talk to you about the Puritans. Remember, under Mary, a bunch of Protestants fled to Geneva. Since we're back in England, I really should put up an English map. That's England, and that's Scotland. A bunch of English people fled to Geneva, where they were very taken with the ideas of Calvin. When under, Mary, under Queen Elizabeth, when they came back to England, they brought these ideas of a purified church. Listen carefully. These were the basic ideas that set the Puritans apart. The first idea was they were completely dependent upon God for their salvation. They knew their own depravity, and they knew how much only God could save them. None of them were looking to their works. A second point about Puritans is they were of the Reformed branch which wanted simple services. They were very concerned about idolatry and wanted to serve God in spirit and in truth. Third point, they were passionate about preaching. Preaching was something that was, was new. Because before you'd go to church and you'd have the magical ceremony and you would go away thinking that your spiritual walk was good. But the Puritans said, no, the way to sanctification and transformation is to have your mind transformed by the word of God. The preaching of the word was very important. So they brought in plain style preaching, sometimes using dramatics, but they realized that that was the most important part of the church service, was not coming to church where you'd have a magical experience with transubstantiation. You'd come to church and you'd be transformed by hearing about God's sovereignty, about God's love, about your instructions for life. They also believed, like Calvin, that God was sovereign over the world and that nations had a duty, had an accountability to serve God and that when a nation disobeyed God, when a nation ignored God and went away, God would bring punishment on that nation. Covenant, was the idea of covenant was very important to the Puritans. 
as a church, you would make a covenant before God and with each other that said, I am here to watch over your soul. I'm going to do everything I can to keep you accountable. We are now one body. And if anybody in this body sins, it's going to affect everybody. The Puritans were very big on this idea of accountability because they knew that there was sin in the midst. The whole body was going to suffer. We have become so individualized in our thinking that we think, if I sin, I'm only hurting myself. And if we look at a brother or sister in Christ, we're not too concerned about their spiritual state because it's only affecting them. Puritans didn't see it that way. They realized we are a body. Whatever affects one person affects all of us. They cared about who a person married because a marriage, a good marriage affected the community, a bad marriage affected the community. Very important. They cared about heresy because heresy spread. Puritans were not big on religious tolerance because to them there was one God and his truth was real. Some people who are tolerant, they're only tolerant because they don't really believe that truth exists. So your truth is as good as my truth. That's not how the Puritans saw it. They saw it, if you believed something false, you were endangering your soul and you were endangering the lives of everybody you touched. So they were very strict in doing everything they could to reach you. They did adopt, some of them, this idea of church discipline where the elders would interview. They would make sure that your heart was right with God. But the Puritans were very merciful. When they, when they punished someone for their sin, it wasn't just for the sake of resenting that they had fun and punishing them. They really wanted to do everything they could to make sure that this person's walk was right with God. I was very moved by this desire that they had to watch over each other's souls. That's very stirring. When we see some brother falling away with doubts, do we just let that person walk away as if a casualty to him is not going to affect us? Or do we do everything we can to reach out to that person because we deeply care about his eternal worth and his eternal destination? They also believed, though, that God made covenants not just with a church body, not just with families, but that God made a covenant with the nation. So this is why they thought it was important that there be Christians in government and that all of society have laws that reflect God's glory. Because for us, it's not just, we may think it's just Christians who have an obligation to keep God's law. But the Puritans said, God created not just Christians, he created everybody. God's law is not just applicable for people who sign up for our social club. God's law is applicable to every single person that God gives breath to. So we might as well have a society that reflects that. Now the English Puritans... They also were Puritans because they wanted to purify the church service. They wanted to set up church politics where each congregation was free to hear from God. They didn't want to be under bishops. They wanted congregational rule. Presbyterians would elect bishops over them, but they were still under bishops. Puritans wanted congregational rule. They tried to stay a part of the Church of England. They were adamant that we're not trying to cause discord or unnecessary division, like the separatists who left. They wanted to make sure we are not separatists. We just want to refine the Church of England. But they came to realize, we just can't do it here, so let's go to America and set up the Church of England over there. 
And during Charles II, remember Charles II, no, Charles I, Charles I married Henry IV, Henry of Navarre's daughter. She brought a bunch of Catholic influence. And so Catholics were regaining strength and the Bishop Laud was coming down on the Puritans even more. So a bunch of them led a great migration. 25,000 Puritans and 40,000 other Englishmen, they left England, leaving, that's quite a, a big lump of people to lose. The American Puritans came and they set up the Bay Colony. We'll get to their story in a little bit. I want to continue the story about the English Puritans though. They continued to gain power. They entered Parliament and Charles I became more absolutist in his views. He tried to enforce his will. He tried to rule without Parliament. But his bishop overreached himself, Bishop Laud, he tried to enforce the Book of Common Prayer, the Anglican liturgy, on the Scottish people. The first Sunday where they tried this, this English bishop tried to exercise from the com to a service from the Common Book of Prayer to a congregation of mostly females. These females said there is no way England is going to put their stamp on us. And a woman named Jenny actually got up and threw her stool at the bishop. <laughs> and chased the bishop out of the building. Can you imagine a Scot doing that? It's actually not that hard. The Scottish got together and they were gonna wage war on England for this. So Charles I, against his will, he called Parliament back into session because he needed authorization to get troops together to fight Scotland. Parliament said, we will give you this authorization you must meet our bill of our petition of rights though that we're going to have a parliament every 3 years whether you call it you can't raise taxes unless we say so unless we give you authorization and you can't just dissolve a parliament at will we must reserve these charles at first said yes but then he broke his his promise that was called the short parliament because it dissolved right away he was forced into calling a long part, well, another parliament, which is called the Long Parliament, because it lasted on and off for 20 years. You'll hear why in a little bit. He heard these Puritans in office who were stirring up the common people against him. Now, he was trying to rule an absolute dictatorship, which the merchants didn't like because he was taxing everything he could. So there, and he was also trying to dissolve parliament. So there were three people groups against Charles. There was the merchants who were against him, there was the Puritans who were against him because of the religious beliefs, and there was the pro-parliamentarian people who thought that the king needed a balance of power by parliament. King Charles marched into parliament. He was the first English king to do this. The king was supposed to stay out of parliament so that the people could feel free to speak their voice. But he came in with armed men and he was going to capture the vocal Puritans who were against him. They had already fled, but Charles raised an army, a royalist army, and the English Civil War started. At first, they were defeating these, they were called the Roundheads, because Puritans didn't like long, fancy hair or wigs, and they just often had short, cropped hair, so they were called the Roundheads. The Roundheads were one, it was the Roundheads versus the Royalists, or the Cavaliers. And at first, the royalists were winning all the battles, but a man, a 
very devout Puritan by the name of Oliver Cromwell, started devising strong military tactics. And he gave this whole battle spiritual significance. They would sing hymns. He would rally them according to biblical principles. And they started solidifying around that, and they started winning battles. And they have ended up, ended up defeating the royalist armies. They captured, they killed Bishop Laud. They captured Charles, and they had him in jail. And there was peace for a few years. Then Charles made an agreement with the Scottish. He said, I'll turn England into a Presbyterian nation if you help me. So the Scots bit. They tried an uprising where they freed Charles. Cromwell came down hard again. This was the second civil war in England. And this time when they captured Charles, they had him executed, which was a big mistake because a lot of the people who were fighting did not want to abolish the monarchy. The monarchy was part of the English psyche. They only wanted to limit the monarchy. So to see Cromwell actually murder Charles was very difficult for them to see. A picture of Charles with a crown of thorns around his head looking long, saintly up into heaven started being distributed and it looked like Charles had been completely butchered by Cromwell. Cromwell abolished the monarchy, he abolished the House of Lords, he kicked out anybody out of Parliament who was against Puritan views. The Parliament that was left was called the Rump Parliament. <laughs> and it started setting up these laws. At this point, people were more scared of Puritan Cromwell than they were of the king. Because he was bringing down, he was outlawing the theater, bear fighting, anything that smacked of corruption, they were coming down hard on it. There was some good things to Cromwell's army. He was very important on education and encouraging literacy. Cromwell set himself up as Lord Protectorate, which was his version of a new kingship. He, he thought being a king would make him proud, so he didn't want to be called king. But he died, and his son was no able ruler, and so people brought, invited Charles II, who was Charles I's son, who had been living in Europe, who was a cousin to Louis XIV, and Charles II admired Louis XIV, his absolute views. Charles II was a very immoral man. He brought back the theater, but theaters, ironically, were more raunchy and explicit than they were before. It was amazing how when you try to legislate morality like that, it creates rebels. And there was this rubber band effect where they were delighting in making the theater as corrupt as possible. 20 years later, though, they natural sensibilities took in and once again the plays were proper and all the raunchy comedies that were popular were naturally gotten rid of. I think we can take a, a lesson that when we try too hard to push our morality, sometimes it's just going to cause a boomerang effect. Charles II had no heir, so when he died it was given to his brother, James II. James II was very pro-Catholic. But he was an old man. They thought he could humor him. He had two daughters who were Protestant. They thought, we can live with his daughters when they take the throne. We'll just let James II die as a senile old king. But then he married an, a younger woman, and he did have a son. 
and Parliament realized now we have a problem because he's going to want to enforce Catholicism on him. So they invited William of Orange, who had married James II's daughter, Mary. They invited him to England. It's called the Glorious Revolution. They took England. Charles sent his soldiers out to meet him to find that his soldiers had all abandoned him and joined William. So William and Mary ruled for a while. William was Dutch. He didn't really care about England. But people loved his wife, Willie, his, his wife Mary. When they died without children, William's sister Anne, also a daughter of James II, she became queen for a while and she was also loved. At this point though, sorry, I am killing that phrase to death at this point. But at this point, Anne left no children. So they passed a rule that will have, it was called the Act of Settlement, which said that yes, next in line is, the next Protestant in line is the one who gets the throne. So the next Protestant in line was George, who was a great-grandson of James I. And he'd been in Europe, he only knew German, he didn't even know English, but he was the next Protestant in line. He came to England, and this was when the Prime Minister first became part of England. Because George had knew no English, he appointed Robert Walpole to be his representative. And he had a cabinet of advisors, and the leader of that cabinet of advisors was Robert Walpole, who was the first Prime Minister of England. And gradually, the Parliament and the Prime Minister, where before it was answerable to the King, became answerable to Parliament. So that brings us up about 1730. Just jump back in history to the Puritans. I'm going to switch the map. You'll see right here, Jamestown, which was named after James. It was in Virginia after the Virgin Queen. was established down here. The Mayflower had been blown way off track. They were hoping to be in Virginia. They ended up way up there in Plymouth. The Bay Colony, which was about a thousand Puritans who arrived in, seven, in um, 1630, John Winthrop was their governor. When he arrived, he had a very, he was a, a godly man. He said, he had a stirring speech. He said, people, let's work together. Let's put other people's needs ahead of our own. Let's ignore our rank of Lord or whatever position of wealth you have. Let's all pull our weight together and let's create a city on a hill that shows the world what a city, what a nation that follows God's laws. We will show the world the blessings that will follow when we have a nation that wants to follow God's laws. That was the start 
of the Bay Colony. And this is the whole New England area where the Puritans left their mark. Literacy in the New England areas was higher than anywhere else in the world because it was so important to be able to read the Bible. That was so important that you hear. Just in, 50, in uh, 1636, just six years later, they established Harvard as a seminary to train ministers. You have to remember back then, they didn't have the History Channel, they didn't have CNN, they didn't have Twitter or Facebook, surprisingly, I know in the last one. The minister was the most educated person in the colony. He was all of those things. He was CNN, he was the newspaper, he was the Discovery Channel, he was Mythbusters. He was the one who was educated and would study and devote his time to study so that the people who work, and they would listen to him three hours in the morning and three hours in the afternoon and evening, where he would teach them a Christian worldview and the latest in news and science. And so the minister was a very educated person. <coughs> that first winter in February, they were starving. They cried, they had a fast day, they cried out to God, and just then a ship came in February with food. But a man by the name of Roger Williams was also on the ship. Cotton Mather, who was writing a history of the New England area, he talked about this windmill in the Netherlands that was whipping so, the, the wind was so strong that it set the windmill on fire and it set the town on fire. He said, in 1631, we had a young man who had the wheels in his mind going so fast that he set the colonies on fire. He was referring to Roger Williams, who brought, first of all, Roger Williams had a very esteemed view of himself. He had a passion for purity, but he could not admit that he was wrong. And he had continually alienated people until the only person he could have communion with was his wife and he had doubts about her. He, some of his radical ideas were that you should not be enforcing religion on other people, even though the Puritans said, what, that would endanger our souls. We have to do that. That's part of watching each other's souls. And he would respond by saying, no, you can't enforce faith. Faith to be genuine has to be voluntary. It has to come from the inside. He also had this crazy idea that the land belonged to the Indians and that we should, have, we should be forced to buy it from them, not just claim it because of a charter from the king. But anyways, he was very outspoken in his beliefs, and he was forced to flee the Bay Colonies, where he lived with the Indians for a while and bought some land for them and established Providence, Rhode Island. And there, he, this was one of the first places in North America where there was religious freedom. He made sure that you were free. <laughs> Very important to him. He did, however, have trouble with the Quakers. Robert, Roger Williams had written books about how you must have freedom of conscience and other people can't coerce. So when he tried to coerce the Quakers, they would show him passages from his book and say, look, you said this. We're just living by it. Quakers are known as peaceful pacifist people, and that's what a bunch of them became. But a bunch of them were also very disturbing of the peace. One marched into a Puritan service, 
threw some bottles on the ground and said, this is to symbolize basically what God wants to do to you if you don't repent. Quakers were started by George Fox in England. George Fox was a poor man. He knew the Bible very well, but he believed that what was most important was direct revelation from God. He didn't like the idea of churches telling other people what to do. In their church services, there was no liturgy, there was no bulletin, there was no agenda. People would come with a blank slate and they would sit there until they received a message from the Holy Spirit. And anybody was free to receive a message from the Holy Spirit that he would give them. Some people would come a long ways to hear George Fox. And some Sundays the Holy Spirit wouldn't give him anything, so he was just silent the whole service, much to the disappointment of the people who had traveled a long way. They were pacifists. A man by the name of William Penn was, became a Quaker. Charles II owed him a debt. He said, you can pay me by giving me this tract of land. Yeah, right around here, right around there. Which he then bought from the Indians. And, Rod, and uh, William Penn, he said, I want this holy experiment where I will set up a land where everybody is free to worship God as his conscience dictates. And so Pennsylvania became a place where there was also religious freedom. The other place where there was religious freedom was right there in Maryland. Maryland was named after... Charles's II's wife, Henrietta Maria, as a place for persecuted Catholics to come to North America. But Catholics were not the majority of people who were coming to North America. So they also had a place, an act of toleration. So Maryland, Rhode Island, and Pennsylvania were the places where religious freedom was a start. Just quickly give you some history on these other states. We had up here the Bay Colonies who were spreading to Boston and Salem, Plymouth, and Hartford, which Connecticut, which was also started by an offspring of the Bay Colony. Then we have down here Virginia. Now in between there, there was a tract of land owned by the Dutch. They had bought Manhattan for $24 worth of trinkets from the Indians. They had their settlement, New Amsterdam. Charles II said, you know, I want, to have, I want to give a gift to my brother, the Duke of York. So I'm going to give him that tract of land. Very generous. He gave the Dutch land to his brother. He said, now it's your job to go clean out the Dutch people. So the Duke of York, his brother, who became James II, sent an army over there. And it was very easy. He captured the Dutch people bloodlessly because there just wasn't the manpower. There was religious freedom in the Netherlands. So very few people wanted to come to North America. So he conquered them, uh, called it New York. And that was how the US, which wasn't the US back then, that was how the British took that. So that's, and then just quickly, uh, North Carolina and South Carolina. Carolina is how you say Charles in Latin. So, and Georgia was the last colony to join. It was as a, it was a place set up 
to empty London's prisons. That was where they sent orphans and prisoners that they didn't know what to do with. But it, life was so hard in this that a lot of prisoners were given the choice between execution or the hard life of Georgia, and a lot of them chose execution. That shows you that the people who came for religious reasons knew what they were getting into, that they knew what a hard life they were going to encounter. The Puritans were greatly admired up until this century because contrary to, we live in an individual age where the idea of someone telling us what to do boils our blood. So a city where you're told what you can and can't do just rankles us. And so puritanical is a deep insult to someone. But up until this period, the Puritans were greatly admired because they had a stable society. They had great literacy rates. They had a hard work ethic. They were very successful. But something happened in the Puritan colonies that has forever given Puritans a bad name. Remember how I said Satan likes to take a movement, make it extreme, and the extreme is the only thing that people notice? Well, there was some supernatural activity going on in a village near Salem called Salem Village. This was 1692. Some girls were playing with magic, trying to figure out who they would marry. But they started doing strange things, flapping their arms, running around, and the leaders took this seriously. Magic was very serious. The Old Testament was full of commands, thou shalt not let a witch live, permit a witch to live. So they asked these girls, where did you get this magic? And they started naming women who were witches. And other people had said, yep, I've seen these women praying to Satan. And other people said, yeah, when they bite their lower lip, I feel like my lip's being bitten. When they wring their hands together, my hands are being pinched. And it started this hysteria where anybody these girls named, they thought this was a supernatural revelation that these people were witches. And so they started rounding up people and throwing them into jail. This one pastor who had, had moved on to another village, he had been pastor of Salem, he was called back and accused of being a witch. And he was so flabbergasted, he couldn't believe where this was coming from. But other confessing witches said, yep, he's a witch, and they had the stories. They tried to show these bite marks that appeared on his earth. He, must, he said, he must have sent a demon to my arm. He was hung. Nineteen people were hung and one person was crushed to death. Anybody who confessed was shown mercy, but anybody who maintained their innocence was executed. This one poor woman <laughs> was executed because one of her cows had acted demonically. Somebody did not know cows very well. <laughs> I think all cows are demon-possessed. <laughs> But finally, the Mather, increased Mather, said, you know, we've, we've let things get way out of hand. He said, it's better that 10 guilty witches live 
than one innocent person be put to death. Samuel Sewell, who was one of the condemning passages, was reading a verse in Matthew that said, if you had loved mercy, uh, the innocent, you would not have condemned the innocent. And he was so guilty, he confessed and repented of what he had done. Anne Putnam, who was one of the confessing witches, had also said, I, I lied. <laughs> Some of these people were, were innocent, and I feel bad that they've suffered. And they repented. But ever since then, I mean, apparently in this area, every year they do dramas on this, the Salem witch trials. And when people think of Puritans, they think of irrational people who are obsessed with demons and witch hunts and completely intolerant. That's not an accurate picture. They sinned, but they repented. And there was supernatural manifestations going on at this time, where people were screaming hysterically and uh, terrible manifestations of violence and, and scary things. So there was an act of Satan going on in this village. But it's colored our view of the Puritans because these were a people who loved God. They loved to laugh. They were joyful people. Their sermons were long. They had a pole that had a knob on one end and a feather on the other end. Now, if a woman fell asleep, someone would go tickle her cheek with the feather. If a man fell asleep, they'd turn the stick around and whack him. <laughs> this one man fell asleep, and he was snoring so loudly that they brought the knob over, and they whacked his hand. He jumped up and said, Curse ye, woodchuck! <laughs> He'd been dreaming that a woodchuck was nibbling on his hand. <laughs> He was so mortified when he realized where he was. <laughs> so the Puritans did leave a legacy for us of, of caring for other people. And their writings are very inspirational because their view of God is so high and exalted. And when you think about it, what makes you happier? A life of purity or a life that is tainted by sin? We think of them as dour people. But think back, what are the times in your life where you have felt the most joy? Is it when you've been dabbling with wasting your time and sin? Or has it been after when you have been repentant and you've tasted the holiness of God? Hopefully, each of you have tasted what it's like to be, have the holiness of God burn away any desire for sin and have completely burned away your lustful desires, and you've tasted just for a, a minute the beauty of holiness. Whenever that's happened to me, that's when I feel most joy. Yes, I'll laugh, but it's so much more than just laughing at a comedy. It's a laughter that comes from a deep joy. And when you think about a society that was devoted to keeping their lives pure, because, you know, anything that God tells us not to partake in, anything that we try to do, God says, eliminate from your life. Why do you think God does it? Because he's a killjoy or he knows that this is going to rob our connection with God. And he knows that the greatest joy is anything that in communion with God. So when you look at the Puritans that way, you can see how there would have been joy. The Puritans, though, the second generation, fell away from God. The Puritans did everything they could, and this is so sobering. They did everything they could to hang on to their young people. 
They were careful not to make idols of their young people, of their kids. But the young people were still falling away, getting obsessed with greed and land. And they were losing them. And in the 1675, Massasoit, by the way, was the name of the, the chief who had helped the, the separatists. Massasoit's son, his Christian name was Philip. It's called King Philip. He gathered up one of the, a bunch of other tribes and was planning this uprising. And he came on the, Purit the Puritans and the separatists with such a fury. They were terrified, living in fear. It became known as King Philip's War, which by population was the bloodiest war that has ever taken place. Twice what the Civil War, by population, twice what the Civil War did, and seven times what the Revolution, American Revolution, just a crazy amount of blood. And for a lot of people, this was such a wake-up call that we need God. Where right now we are about 1670. On Sunday, I'm going to talk about Jonathan Edwards a real hero of mine. Next time I have a boy, his middle name's gonna be Edwards because of Jonathan Edwards. So we're gonna look on Sunday. Tomorrow, uh, when we come back from our break though, I'm going to talk about George Whitfield and John Wesley, two revivalists who came and tried to infuse some of the spirit's life back into these established colonies and call them back to God.